When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Weekly Podcast in association with Charles Tirrett, who are supporting the podcast and the build-up to the Ashes and across Wisdom's coverage of the series. Known, among other things, for their stylish shirts, it's worth checking out their knitwear range, including crewnecks, v-necks, or even their zip necks. Available in a variety of colours and perfect for wearing both in the office or even when you're working at home. During this period, we'll be offering a discount for all our listeners. If you use the code WISDON20 at checkout, as the code suggests, you'll get 20% off your order. That's code WISDON20. Uh, I think on this show, we'll actually talk about a fair bit of real cricket that was played in the last week, which makes a pleasant change to recent weeks. I'm Yazron, and with me in the studio today is the managing editor of Wisdom.com, Bed Gardner, the magazine editor of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the editor-in-chief of Wisdom Cricket Monthly, Phil Walker. Let's start with the first test between the number one and two ranked sides on the planet, an absorbing seesawing final day draw at Kanpur, where New Zealand just about clung on for the draw, finishing nine down in their second innings. Joe, it's not a full strength India side, but New Zealand will be pretty content with that result. India very rarely don't win at home. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose what you might qualify that with is this was their best chance to get a win um, and you've got a couple of players back we saw with England's tour out there that they got the win early and then India hit their stride so they might look back as on this test as a, as a missed opportunity given the position they were in on what day two day three but yeah given given the final final day the final session uh, New Zealand will be pretty pleased with that um, kind of backs to the wall effort Um Again, as it seems to be with New Zealand, it's sometimes those lesser names that stand up when they most need them. Somerville had a crucial innings at the start of that day five. And then uh, Ravindra, um, seeing them home, effectively, or seeing them to the draw. Um, and it's interesting they, the way they went about it as well, that obviously you expect uh, spin to dominate, but it was it was Jameson and Southie who took the bulk of the wickets for, for the New Zealand side. And you can see, even in conditions which don't necessarily suit them particularly, 
Um, they still play to their strengths and are still a very, very effective, durable side that are just very hard to beat. Mm. Um, ben, talk to us about Ratchin Ravindra. You watched him in the Under-19 World Cup four years ago. Now he's been on the New Zealand radar for a while. He's still only 22 and a very impressive debut, battling out at the end of that day five. Yeah, well, I guess the interesting thing is is that he's sort of, well, firstly, the interesting thing that sort of grabs the headlines to begin with the, these sort of SEO who is pieces is that his name Ratchin comes from his dad, who's a huge cricket fan. And it's literally a portmanteau of uh, Rahul and Sachin after Drowan and Tendulkar, which is interesting. Uh, but I guess with him being selected in this side, that uh, it looks like they've picked him as a, as a spinner and as a bowling all-rounder, when actually he's kind of plied his trade as a as a batting all-rounder in that um, on 19-world cup he was batting in the top three, top four. He's got a pretty good first-class record and is, is kind of, I'm not sure he'll ever be a frontline spin option. Um, and he didn't take a wicket in this game, but did bat very capably. So I think that um, that's where, if he is to become a long-term test player, that'll be where it is. It'll be in the top five, filling in with a few overs here and there. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he, that, that New Zealand side had quite a few really promising uh, players at that World Cup. They had Finn Allen in it as well, um, who has obviously set the T20 world light since then, got a, a replacement gig at RCB. Uh, and he was, look, they, they, a lot of them just looked like very assured and very confident. And that's how he kind of came across. And so it's no surprise that he's kind of taken to this straight away because uh, he didn't seem like a very overawed character then. And uh, and that that's how it seemed then. I'd say that uh, on, on New Zealand with the seamers, it was interesting that it was those bowling well because this was, it was quite an interesting pitch in that it was uh, like a lot, it got a bit of criticism, but I quite, I mean, a pitch that where, you know, it goes down to the last ball of day five is normally quite a good one. Uh, it didn't turn low at the beginning and was turning a bit and back keeping a bit low, but not excessively. And there wasn't a huge magnet for the bowlers, but I think because for the quicks, I mean, but because the quicks were so good, they were kind of able to get something out of it anyway. Like Umesh Yadav is just a brilliant bowler at home who can kind of summon something from nothing. And Tim Sally was absolutely phenomenal. Like I think that coming in, looking at it from a New Zealand point of view, the most interesting was like, can Kyle Jameson do it away from the helpful conditions? And he did bowl really well. But the main thing was just a reminder of just like how good Southie is basically everywhere he bowls, like getting reverse swing. Uh, and and that, that five was absolutely, absolutely brilliant. And he's got an amazing record in Asia, averages like under 25 with the ball, which is, uh, and people think of him, I think is like a, a sort of a, like a swing bowler basically. And he needs to have that like a new ball and some, and a bit like, what people say about James Anthony is those clouds to to do it. But this was just a, a, a phenomenal performance from a guy who can kind of do it everywhere, I think. And in the last few years, his career almost stepped up to another level that he hadn't previously reached. Um, quickly, do you think that New Zealand missed a trick not not playing Neil, Neil Wagner going for, going for three spinners? Yeah, well, with what Joe was saying about how, because I, I thought it was how both teams sort of approached it throughout the game at different points. Like I think there were, there were moments looking back where they might both think they could have gone for the kill a little bit more. Um, and I think not having Wagner was particularly damaging on the towards the end of day one when India were like what 140 for five and then Shreya Sire and Jadeja batted out the day that's when you really wanted sort of like a, a spell of make something from nothing short balls from him and there's a bit of I mean you're not going to pick a player to target just the debutant and that wouldn't be what, what they're picking Wagner for anyway but he was uh, he that, that that's what people suggest that he might have a, a slight issue with the short ball and there wasn't uh Obviously, Jameson and Sally are both bowlers who like to get it up fuller, so he wasn't having to survive that sustained barrage. And then on day four, there was a point after T when in, when the game kind of just stalled for a bit. Like uh, India scored 30 runs in 15 overs. New Zealand weren't really trying to get those last three wickets or last two wickets. And you kind of thought, actually, for both sides, like if New Zealand had got 
those wickets right then and really gone for the kill, then they would have been chasing like 200, 220 uh, in, you know, just under four sessions and they're really in with the chance. And if India obviously score 60 runs then and can declare, you know, five, 10 overs earlier, then, you know, they probably would have won the game. Mm. So it was a, yeah. We're not, Phil, we've not talked about Shreyas I yet, sensational debut. Uh, hadn't played a first class game since 2019. Um, and he's given the India selectors a massive headache with Cody coming back to the side. Rahane uh, averages 32 over his last 50 test matches. Pajara 27 his last 16 tests. Surely it's time for one of them to go. Well, Rahane would be the obvious uh, man to, to give way. He bats at five uh, and is hanging on by his fingertips, really. Uh, yeah, I watched most of that 100 on the first day. Um, and the way he kind of took himself through that last hour was especially impressive, I thought. And, uh, and it just shows, I think, how, <clears throat> excuse me, how if you, if you play the IPL week after week, then you're just used to those big moments, those kind of clutch moments. Uh, and so final over of the day, and he's, he's, he's kind of moving up towards that landmark and he's, and, uh, and the ball is there. I think it was Somerville, the the, the off-break bowler, and, and it was a new ball, and he landed it in the spot, and it was the last over of the day, and it was there to hit. So he just slaps it over mid-wicket for six and then strolled off as if this was just another game of cricket. And I think I think these these young Indian players who come through that breeding ground of, of IPL cricket, they're just used to these kinds of moments. So so he, he took to it very naturally. He's a good player to watch. He's, he's very, very kind of wristy, very loose limbed in the way that he plays spin in particular um uh, and that's not a cliche because many indian players don't play like that you know shubman gill is he's very elegant but he's more kind of mechanical and uh but aya has a very natural flow to the way he plays especially the the slow bowlers and um he made a very important 60 odd in the second innings i mean without that new zealand i mean new zealand as joe alluded to earlier i mean they should have really they should have been in the scrap to win the game on the last day at the very yeah. least. I mean, they were 150... Well, India were 51 for five at one point in their second innings before... But, but yeah, but in, in, in New Zealand's first innings, they were 100 odd for naught, 120 mm. for naught yeah. overnight and then and then fell away and to actually give up a first innings lead in the end. And, you know, deep down, as Joe said, you know, they, India had a few out, obviously. They could have, they could have really pushed that one home, but... But, you know, considering it's only five minutes since the last big game of cricket and India's, the core of India's team are resting with good reason, it, it turned into a very good test match and it was good to see that the crowds came out for it and they were engaged as well on the final day. I thought that was, that was a positive thing. And so as ever, despite inauspicious um, surroundings, you know, the, the test game throws up another good one. Yeah, it's an interesting time in Indian cricket in that do you think one or both of those players will have to make way soon, if not immediately? I think Rahane probably will, will miss out for the next test match and it's probably overdue, really. I remember Kohli saying a while back that he wanted these exciting young batting talents to get an opportunity young and to, to play when, when they were playing at their best. And you could certainly argue that in the case of Rahane and now increasing with Pujara, that the old players are getting given too long and some of the young players aren't getting their chances early enough. Like Aya's 26 now, could arguably have played a couple of years ago. Um, and there are other young talents kind of bubbling under that, you know, need to be seen. And they've got a, a wealth of options and there's always going to be this dilemma. But it does feel like uh, India and Kohli have, have clung on a bit too long to certainly Rahane um, and potentially Pujara as well. 
Do you think it's almost harder to drop players nowadays in in the COVID bubble era? That the time they spend with each other is so intense, and that you're not just deleting someone from a WhatsApp group. Uh, it certainly does add an element of an extra element of cruelty to dropping someone. I can see that. And in the case of Rahane, he's obviously got a lot of credit in the bank. He was uh, hugely influential in a, a pivotal moment in Indian cricketing history, leading India to victory in Australia when um, Kohli obviously went went home for the birth of his child. So you can you can understand why there is that desire to let Rahane have another chance and, and to to not kind of write him off so soon after that victory. But on his batting alone, he doesn't really deserve to be in the team at the moment. And that's probably been the case for a while now. Mm. Um, moving on to the Ashes, there's been a fair bit of news since the last pod. Uh, Tim Payne has taken an indefinite mental health break from the game, which means that he is unavailable uh, for at least the start of the Ashes. His manager, James Henderson, tweeted, we are extremely concerned for his and Bonnie's well-being and will be making no further comment at this time. Pat Cummins has been confirmed as Australia's 47th men's test captain and Alex Carey is being tipped to replace Payne in the squad, though that's not yet confirmed. Carey averages a shade under 35 in first-class cricket and has played 83 times for Australia in white ball cricket. Um, Phil, I know there was some discussion on last week's pod about whether bowlers can captain, um, but thoughts on the Cummins appointment? Um, Well, under any normal circumstances, if if the game hadn't, gone completely you know haywire then the loss of Australia's test captain two weeks before the first balls bowled at the Gabba would be the biggest story in world cricket but such is the unhinged uh, mood around international cricket at the moment that it just felt like just that day's story almost and um, a word on pain uh, I, I'm not going to get into the, the the messiness of it um, he was held up as the the unifier figure as this kind of white knight coming in on the back of sandpaper gate and all the rest of it um it was described i think it was on the grade cricketer um he's he's like he's he's, he's matt wade with with blue eyes and, and nice hair you know he's he's still a kind of classic aussie aussie mongrel cricketer and um overall i think history will be pretty kind to him i think he he did a pretty good job in in tricky circumstances um not least maintaining his own acceptable form just about um uh as i say i'm not going to get into the into the, the the muckiness around his dismissal and ca's cricket australia's mishandling of the whole thing um but what it probably does mean if you're looking at it purely from a uh players on the pitch position then it probably makes australia slightly stronger I would say um, Alex Carey's been brought into the squad overnight. Um, he's a brilliant cricketer. We saw him in the World Cup 2019 uh, and thought, well, he's going to play 50-plus test matches without a doubt. Um, he's class. Uh, he'll slot in there at number seven. Um, he's good left-hand bat, good keeper, all the rest of it. Uh, can Pat Cummins captain effectively? Well, Greg Chappell... We got an interview with Greg Chappell this week for WCM and he was interesting on this. And obviously Chappell, Greg Chappell has forgotten more about test captaincy than, than most will ever know. And he he has his reservations regarding the idea of a, of a bowling captain. Um, he says you, you're often going to be caught between two stalls, either, not, either bowling yourself too much, as say you saw with, say, Flintoff at Lords in 2006 when he bowled 67 overs against Sri Lanka and then conked out straight after that. Or you don't bowl enough because you feel like, 
not just there's too many balls juggling that you have to be on top of, but also you feel kind of instinctively compelled to to give other players their head because that's a captain is a facilitator as well as a leader. Uh, so Chapel has his reservations, but he also said, look, there wasn't anybody else. You know, you couldn't have gone back to Smith. Warner is inappropriate. Um, also constitutionally not appropriate as well, I think. I think that was one of the sort of sandpaper elements that he was no longer going to be considered still, for a religious yeah, role. He's still banned, yeah. Still, still banned. banned. Yeah. yeah, ludicrous. The whole thing's ludicrous. But anyway, we don't need to go down that road again. It's interesting um, that Steve Smith's back. That's kind of like in, probably the more in, most interesting appointment. Indeed. And... Um, Oh, I forget which which Aussie big hitter it was who said that he's, he's always found it slightly odd that Smith received the public's sympathy and Warner its opprobrium when Smith was the leader. Smith's the one in, in control. I think it might have been Greg's brother Ian. Actually. It, was, it was it was Ian Chappell, wasn't it? This is the Chapel show. Yeah. It's quite interesting on that whole thing because he his his speculation is that Warner got a harsher ban because of his. Uh, his role in the uh, the pay dispute because Warner was sort of the leader of the players and that was one saying like if you don't you know uh, kind of give us what we want there might not be an Asher series yeah um, yeah um, L- L- Labuschagne not really considered realistically not only is he still a bit green as a Test player although he's obviously a, an excellent one uh, but as Chapel put it and I've read this elsewhere as well he wears his heart almost too much on his sleeve and if you think about great Australian captains they're flinty they're in, they're inscrutable. Um, and Labuschagne is, is a more kind of emotionally driven kind of cricketer, which, which is fine and great, but not what you're looking for really in a leader. Cummins, of course, is is the blue-eyed boy, and um, and he will do, no doubt, a very tidy, dutiful job. Um, he will please the sponsors, he will please the, the, the stakeholders and all the rest of it, but there's a reason why, historically, in Test cricket, you don't get bowlers who are, who are captains, uh, because it's one hell of a workload. I mean, he was. I thought his kind of opening comments as he was named captain were quite interesting as well. Because he almost presented it as a as a joint captaincy with Steve Smith. He he, he said, Is that right? Mm. Yeah, I mean, he said that he said he was adamant that he wanted Steve Smith to be his his vice. Not that I don't know if it was his choice as such, but that's what he wanted, and it happened. Uh, and also accepted that there will be times when uh, he'll need to listen to people more than himself. I think was the way he put it, and. We talked about this a bit when Butch was on last week, and Butch was like, I, "I wouldn't like that as a captain." Essentially, kind of sharing sharing the credit, I think, was kind of what he was getting at. And I think there will be a bit of that now. I think when decisions are made and they go right or wrong, there'll be a bit. Oh, did Cummins make it, or did Steve Smith make it? Um, and that could either work in Cummins' favour, or it could actually kind of um, hamper him as, as he goes on as well. But all that's kind of speculation. I think basically, as Phil was alluding to, they didn't really have much choice. He was he was. He was the obvious candidate and he fits in lots of different ways at, at this point. Um, but none of us know he's a good captain. <laughs> that's, the, that's the one thing. None of us have seen him. I think he's, what, captain two one-day games in, in um, Australian domestic cricket? Maybe a couple more than that, but not much at all. Yeah, I suppose if, if you're going to have a bowling captain, you need a strong vice just because you might miss games here and there with rest and rotation stuff. So you need a vice captain who has the respect to the dressing room. Whether Smith has that off sandpaper gate, I don't know, but uh, but that that's why you'd need sort of that that joint ticket, I suppose. But I guess the one thing's interesting, Phil, you described Cummins as the, as the blue-eyed boy, and it does feel to an extent like this cycle is is kind of repeating itself. I mean, may, maybe Cummins is, you know, the, uh, the, the perfect deity that he's been sort of painted to be. Uh, he's kind of guarded against it. He says, you know, everyone uh, has made mistakes in their past and maybe it's a bit harsh to judge people on things that happened before they actually got to the job which they're now losing because of the the thing they did before um but 
he's saying that, but I don't think anyone is is hugely listening. I mean, as the, the sponsors want, you know, a, a poster boy to to hang their hat on, and that that is Cummins, and and so no doubt when he uh, if, if he messes up, that will be the how could this have happened? We thought you were you were perfect, Pat, just as it was with with Tim Payne. And no, that, not that not, not even a digger as scurrilous as you, Ben Gardner, could find anything on, on Pat Cummins. But 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 because people... of course Cummins wasn't even aware of the ball tampering scandal as as he was part Famously, of it as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on on <laughs> Kerry, it's quite interesting. I, I agreed with what Taha said on last week's show. I think Payne's actually done okay with the bat. It's not as if Australia have got loads of wicket keeping options to choose from. And K- Kerry. I think it's quite an interesting one. He averages about 20 in this year's Sheffield Shield. His overall first-class record is, is decent. and But his overall limited overs record for Australia, aside from that World Cup, is is pretty poor, actually. Uh, he averages 11 in T20 cricket, given after 38 games. He averages 36 in ODI cricket, which is, which is fine, but that World Cup plays a, a big part in those numbers. He's not actually done that well for Australia in limited overs cricket. So I, I, I'm not... I don't think he improves that side. I think Payne's done, Do you know by and large, a, a fine job. He's a different type of player as well, isn't he? And this is, I, I think he's, what, averaging 22 this year, but from quite a small sample size. He's had two or three very good years in first-class cricket up, up to this point. Um, but also the way he plays, he can, he can, he's not obviously no Gilchrist, no one is, but he could. I can see him taking the game away from England or kind of ramming it down their throats in a way that was just never going to happen with Payne at seven. He might, he's, He's shown in the past that he can he, he can block out and he can hang around, but Carey could play the sort of uh, innings which actually wins you a Test match, a bit like Haddon did in yeah. thirteen fourteen. And I think that's what would worry me from an English perspective that now they've got a different type of player to contend with. Yeah, that's, that's right. Enough. They'll, they'll also see him as a player who can rise to the occasion, like which in some ways they'll see as making those numbers as irrelevant almost. Like the fact that it was at a World Cup that he had, you know, his 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 best in as a cricketer, and that even in that semi final, you know, he got. Uh, hit in the head, gets his sort of jaw bandaged up and then comes out and keeps playing and gets Australia up to like some sort of total. And then even in that ODI series last year when it got down to a decider and Australia lose a few early and then he hits 100, like a really a, a, a sort of gritty, but a, a, an excellent 100 in the end. That's a good description, that 100. Uh, uh, that um, uh, the, Those kind of things will, will almost add stock that they'll think that, okay, the record might not be there exactly as we'd want it to be, but we've seen this guy when it comes to those moments when you... Like when the pressure's on, he kind of thrives off that. And I think that's what they'll hope will happen, I guess. Mm. Um, England have literally not played a ball since the last pod. They've had every single day of their inter-squad friendlies rained off. Uh, there's hope that the forecast is better for the remaining couple of days of the current game. Um, are, are England going to win the Ashes, guys? Um, <laughs> if, you, if you Google uh, Brisbane test rain, the first three results are quite funny. So the Courier-Mail headline reads... Brisbane weather forecast ominous with green pitch predicted. Nine wild, nine wide world of sports. The headline is heavy rain in Brisbane throws Ashes preparations into chaos. Cricket com AU Brisbane rain and Ashes leveller says Cameron Green. Uh, this week, the Western Australia Premier Mark McGowan reiterated his state's strict quarantine rules, which puts the Perth test under severe doubt. And the mooted options are tests in either Hobart, which is a UK type climate, or another pink ball test, but this time in Melbourne. So you could have a green one at Melbourne, a day night at Adelaide, the Boxing Day test on the road at the MCG. Sydney test, fair enough, give that to Australia. Then a second pink ball test, which supposedly suits England. Rob Barman asked, what percentage chance do you give England of winning the Ashes? Mine was around 20%, but has dropped due to rained off warm-up games. 
What do you reckon? Sounds like at least 100, right? I mean, <laughs> 5-0. Uh, yeah, it's, it's funny how Phil was saying that, yeah, the pain news kind of it kind of happened and then cricket moved on to the next story, whereas it's a bit of rain that has thrown the ashes into into chaos. And also, we should say that the, the rain is sort of, it plays a bit of havoc with England's uh, warm-ups, but it's uh, uh, happening because of this weather condition. There we go. Uh, which is, you know, the other thing that England have got in their, in their pocket. It's uh, La Nina, which uh, is a sort of, cool weather system that makes it rain a bit more basically uh and it was around in 2010-11 when uh, england did okay Five mil. Uh, around, <laughs> around around last year when india obviously beat australia um and does it affect the whole of australia uh i think so yeah yeah, yeah. and and it's so and it's not just that it makes it cloudy but it is with with the green pitch it, it rains more so it makes it harder to prepare those sort of like properly hard baked flat surfaces but well, this gives uh, up maybe nil nil is the way to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> The, the, uh, but the, the one, the one fly in the ointment, and and clearly there is something in this. Uh, and two two day night test matches will even the scales for sure. You say so that, Ben makes Phil, a good point about uh, England are really, really bad recently. Well, this is what I was going to say. Yeah. This is what I was going to say. <laughs> in theory, you think, yeah, sure. Except Australia are unbeatable in day night test matches. Their seamers are, are marvelous in all conditions, but especially when the ball does a little bit as well. And um, Okay, England's players are used to playing the swinging ball more than Australia's are. And so if there is one Achilles heel in that Australian batting lineup, then arguably it could be against the swinging ball. But it's never really played out in reality. It's never played out. England went to Adelaide four years ago and thought, okay, we might be in this one. They weren't. You know, they got blown away on day five quite comfortably in the end. Um, they I got could, bowled out for 58 by New Zealand in a day-nighter. That they did and at they Auckland. Lost a, yeah. lost a two-day to injure in a day-nighter. Yeah, so, for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm well aware of this. Uh, so, look, you, you know that I've been cautiously, probably myopically and probably wrongly optimistic for the last month or two, right? And but only relatively. like re- re- Relatively, yeah. I mean, I went three to Australia in the magazine um, last month. I, I think England are well with well within... Within their, it's well within their capabilities to win a couple of games. Um, I can't really see it going any further than that, but I, I'd be shocked if England don't win one. And with a fair wind and a bit more rain around, then maybe they might they might win two. And then after that, God only knows. I think it's fair to say the, the more messiness, the more things that yeah. go wrong, the, the more things that it's not, not just what you expect, then you can England's chances start to creep up very slightly. But I did have them quite low to begin with, so I'm not I'm not getting ahead of myself at this point. So only four one. Well, if we can get out, we can get out of Brisbane at nil nil, then that's a great start. That's a really really good start to the series. Excellent. Um, Jamie Burkham asks to lighten the mood. If you got one of the current England Test team in a secret Santa, what would you get them? <laughs> you got a limit of fifteen quid, and you can't buy them runs or wickets. Oh, what you should have warned us on this one. Um, well, the way things are going, you can get a uh, wisdom umbrella at wisdom.com oh, forward slash shop. Although not fifteen, probably not, not, 15 not fifteen quid. pounds. I haven't checked the prices. <laughs> you might have to share one. You, you could get a third of a bottle of rye whiskey, which is really excellent. Um, but yeah, only a third of it, unfortunately. Um, yeah, plenty at wisdom.com forward slash shop. Uh, maybe Joe Root some sort of um, relaxation method, like one of those head scratcher things. <laughs> That'd be nice. How to win friends and influence people for Johnny Besto. Get that for him. Um, uh, an Ian Jury album for Dan Lawrence. I reckon he'd enjoy that. New Boots and Panties. New Boots and Panties for Dan Lawrence. Probably hasn't heard it. He'd really enjoy that. Ben, anything to add? Uh, not, not hugely. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Brilliant. It's, it's not where he comes alive. Stuff like that. 
Uh, we've got plenty that, that Ben's oh, on. Oh, yeah, you wait for Thailand women. I spoke to Butch the morning after we recorded the rest of the pod to talk about England's Ashes preparations. Butch, it's fast becoming the norm now that teams go into marquee test series with minimal match preparation under their belt. Um, neither New Zealand nor India played anything before their series at the moment. Um, I don't think India played anything before their series at home to England early in the year. England had two intra-squad friendlies penciled in, but rain meant that they won't get more than a couple of days of cricket in before the first test. I had a look at what you were used to when you played, and I think you played four games before the 0-2-3 series. When you played for England on overseas trips, how, how much importance did you put into these pre-season warm-up games? How, how useful were they? Um, I mean, they were useful, but perhaps not in the way that people would imagine. I mean, everybody gets their, gets their own individual things out of those matches. Um, you know, for some guys, uh, for the bowlers, perhaps it was about getting sort of enough overs under your belt that you were that you were ready to go, but not so many that you were that, that, that you were sort of carrying any fatigue into the first test. For some batters, it was really important just to spend a lot of time out in the middle. Um, for 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 others, it was a kind of I would I would rather do my preparation in an environment where I wasn't worried about getting out. Um, you know, so you were trying to find some some sort of fluency and, and timing in your movements, and so I, I kind of I played a lot of warm up matches and test matches all over the world, and very rarely scored any runs in any of them. Um, I, and it kind of it didn't bother me too much that so that was the case. Um, but you know, other players feel very differently about it. I guess one of the interesting things is that the, the, the matches that England was uh, have been slated to play have been sort of against one another. I, I think that's an interesting thing because. It's very difficult. One of the great things about playing warm-up matches, particularly in Australia, was is that the, the, the way that the state sides or the, the players who were not test players would come out and really try and, and have a proper go at you. Um, and in many respects, that was the most, most sort of important or the most, um, uh, the most preparing thing for sort of a test match at the Gabba, which was that you'd have Aussies snarling at you. There'd be genuine sort of animosity, genuine... Um, sort of uh, genuine unpleasantness before you got into the first test. And that is, is gold dust, um, sort of getting used to the idea of it, of it being a real contest. And you, you aren't going to get that. I mean, I don't care what you say. You're not going to get that in a match between a lot of people that you know. Yeah, I'm looking at that 02-03 tour um, across the test series and the ODI series. England played nine warm-up games and didn't win a single one. You know, you're talking about competitive games. Ma- yeah. Martin Love scored a double hundred playing for Australia A in between the test matches. So that, that's that's proper warm cricket. Well, Martin, I mean Martin Love, I think he might have scored a thousand runs against England, England in the touring in the tour matches. We didn't get him out, I don't think. Um, but then in the test match, he didn't score any runs at Sydney in the test matches. So it kind of you know it doesn't follow that that doing one thing in the warm ups means you do another in the uh, in the test matches themselves. I mean, uh, I'd probably go back to. For as far as as far as my Ashes um, experience is concerned, I'd go back to my first trip, which was 98-99, in which I'd had more stitches in my face than I'd scored runs leading into the first test at Brisbane, and then made 100 in the test match. So it kind of, you know, it, it kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, it matters, it matters, but it doesn't matter. And it, it, gives, it gives all of the, the speculators and the media and the pundits something to talk about in the lead-up. But at the end of it all, it, it matters little. I suppose the one, the one thing that you could say that I think was unbelievably important in England's last success in 10-11 was not what the individuals did, but the way that the team, the team sort of prepared themselves for, for Ash's battle, which was they would put themselves under pressure and try to win those warm-up matches. 
I think very often you go into these tours, and, I, and it was certainly the case in 2002, three, and certainly the case in 98, 99, where you went into the matches where individuals were trying to get whatever they wanted out of the games. Whereas Strauss and Co. went, we're going there to win these matches. These are, you know, these are like, um, you know, there's points on, on these. You know, it's like playing, playing proper first-class matches where you're trying to win the league. And I think that, in essence, is, is a brilliant way to go about the preparation. Um, and everything else is kind of, doesn't really matter, to be honest with you. I guess that got lost slightly in recent years when the quality of the touring sides declined quite a lot. I think teams, I mean, Australia, when they came here in 2019, before COVID and all that, they, they played themselves as well because they just didn't really trust the quality of opposition counties would put out a second team, basically. And that's not really great yeah. prep for a test match. And, and that... That had been the case, actually. You know, I, I go again. I go back to my first first time I ever saw Shane Warne, and first time I ever saw uh, potentially, I think, Glenn McGraw. Although my memory might not be quite right on that. But in the on the '93 um, Ashes trip, first time Warney came over. You know, Surrey put out. They'd play against Surrey at the Oval um, early season. You know, when they first arrived, basically, and it was it was very much that's why I was playing. It was very much sort of like a second eleven thing. So England had always done that, or most of the counties had always done that because the, the fixture schedule was just so mad. Um, you know, back in those days, nothing's changed really. Um, you know, the, the first 11s would take the opportunity to have a bit of a rest, and 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 the sort of the second string would play against the touring team. Now Australia always looked at it differently. They would throw out the best players that they possibly could in the state matches in order to try and beat us up, which is basically what happened. That's what they used to do. Um, but, you know, that's the, the, the Australian psyche, as far as that is concerned, has changed um, a little bit as well. Of course, you know, the, the, there wasn't the big bash back in those days. So, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of sort of first-class players, a lot of the first-string players might not be engaged in first-team cricket or first-class cricket while the, while the preparations for the Ashes trip is going on. So the, the landscape has changed massively on, on both sides um, as far as the, the prep for these series is concerned. I know you say that the media puts too much emphasis on what happens in warm-up games, so I'm going to ask you two questions about what happened overnight. Um, on the day of cricket we just had, are you slightly surprised that they didn't mix the teams up more? Um, when we've had such little cricket, was there really much use in Alex Lees batting for an entire session? Only two top seven batters who might plausibly play the first test batted. There were Crawley and Pope who scored 45 and 27 respectively. Yeah, no, I mean, that's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, but I suppose you could look at it the other way around and say that the, you know, that the England's sort of first string bowlers, um, you know, got got a bit of mileage in their legs against a, you know, against a, a batter who, who who made them wait for it, made them work for it a little bit. So I suppose, but yeah, I mean, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? If you end up getting the next couple of days washed out, then uh, then you then your first choice um, top three don't get it, don't get much of a hit. It's just, the whole thing is very very. Um, very, very suboptimal, <laughs> um, and you're just going to have to make the best of it. But it, you know, I suppose it's the same for the Australians as well. I don't want to infer too much from the lineups, but England picked Johnny Bairstow in that England eleven, whose top seven is the incumbent lot from the India series ahead of Ollie Pope. It was reported that Bairstow would have stayed in the side ahead of Pope for the cancelled Old Trafford Test when Butler was returning after the birth of a child. I know Besto did did well in Australia last time round, but since the start of 2019, he has the third worst average of any top seven batter in the world who's batted 20 or more times. He averages 21 in his last 18 tests. Um, I appreciate this is a leading question, but what do you make, of, a... what do you make of England possibly uh, picking Besto ahead of Pope? Well, I mean, 
so Ollie Pope in in South, the, the best I think that Ollie Pope played for England um, was on England's uh, victorious trip to South Africa. Um, what was that? The, the sort of like the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, and he looked every inch, you know, a Test match number five, number six on that trip. Kookaburra ball, bouncy pitches, etc. Um, and so, you know, the, the undoubted promise that, that, that Ollie Pope has and, you know, people, I suppose the expectations on him because his, his county average is so fantastic when he doesn't make 100 every time he plays for England, everyone says, he, well, he's massively overrated. Well, no, I don't think so. And I think that, that conditions in Australia, being as they are, very similar to those in South Africa. The Wanderers, where he made that, uh, that sparkling 100 against Nokia and, so, and, and co, would, would suit him just as much. Um, as they did down there. So that would be a shame. I suppose that, you know, the, the Johnny Bairstow's numbers are, are pretty shocking. Um, but England would point to consistency and say that he would have played in that test match at Old Trafford. Pope only got the chance to make the 80 that he did at the Oval because of uh, the, the birth of Joss Butler's child. And so they're just reverting to the plan that they had before then. Um, I think it's a long-winded way of me saying I think it's a mistake. I think Ollie mm -hmm. Pope should probably start in front of Johnny Bairstow. But, um, you know, Johnny, it's maybe the last chance saloon for Johnny. And when he's in that situation, quite often he comes up with something. So for, from an England point of view, you hope that that's the case. But I, I think it's a wrong move. I feel like that's at least the 10th time in the last year or so someone said it's last chance saloon for Best. I mean, Pope scored 81 in his, in his last test match. Best hasn't scored that many runs in innings for, for something like three years. No, indeed. And, and um, you know, he, Johnny Bairstow in that last test match got, got spiked by, by Boomer, didn't he? Um, quite famously in that, uh, in that second inning. So, mate, look, I, I don't know. I don't pick the team. But um, I've, given, I've laid out all the reasons as to why I, I wouldn't do what they're going to do. It's a good way to end. Cheers, Butch. Cricket 22 is out on That's the... I get them. Cricket 22. Yeah. <laughs> Cricket 22 <laughs> is uh, out on the 2nd of December on PlayStation 4 and 5, Xbox One and Series X or S and PC. It's the latest game from Big Ant, the biggest name in cricket simulations. Cricket 22 gives you unprecedented depth with new controls, gameplay, a narrative-driven career mode, a new commentary team, and all new team and competition licenses. Play along with this year's Ashes competition, take part of the 100, or move through the ranks to represent your nation at the highest level. Cricket 22 has it all, and remember, it's out now. Um, aside from the India-New Zealand series, there have been a couple of other tests going on that have been fun. Uh, Pakistan beat Bangladesh chasing down 202 and winning by eight wickets. Bangladesh actually had a first innings lead of 44. They recovered from 49 for four to post 330. There's a first test ton for Lytton Das. Hassan Ali continued his extraordinary resurgence in test cricket with figures of 551 in the first innings. Pakistan were bowled out for 286. Uh, there was a fourth test on for Abid Ali, a half yeah. century on debut. I'm going to get to Abid Ali. Got some good That's stats on Abid Ali. Uh, a half century on debut from Abdullah Shafiq in just his fourth first class game, uh, but not much else from the rest of the order. Tajul Islam took a seven for, for Bangladesh. Shaheen then took a second innings fiver to leave Pakistan needing 202, which they chased down with ease. The openers did the business again. Abid with 90. Shafiq with 73 uh, so on Abid Ali is an interesting one because he averages pretty much 50 uh, in test cricket but he's either incredible or really bad depending on his opposition I was going to say yeah the opposition seemed quite key to that yeah so here we go average 75 against Bangladesh 161 against Sri Lanka 275 against Zimbabwe but against England it's 27 New Zealand 19 West Indies 18 and South Africa 8 uh, so 
quite a big difference there, depending on opposition. Um, and then Abdul Shafiq's very interesting because, yeah, as I said, only his four, fourth first-class game. Um, he's been part of Pakistan's travelling squads for a year or so now. He's very highly rated and apparently by King Baba himself. Um, there's a good piece on ESPN Quick Info by Uma Farik about Shafiq. Um, basically, he hasn't played that much first-class cricket, partly because of COVID, but also because uh, in 2019-20, his first-class side was really good. So I had Babar Azam, Azhar Ali, Abid Ali, Salman Butt and Ahmad Jazad have all played for Pakistan. Um, so he was basically stuck in the twos in this really good team ahead of him. Um, he then got picked uh, to play for Pakistan A, or they call Pakistan Shaheens, and he scored a, a hundred for them and he scored a hundred for number three uh, on his state debut and he's done really well in, in T20 cricket as well. So he's one to watch. Um, These were technically his first two first-class half centuries. He had two... Te- you don't get Andy's Oxman started on this because <laughs> <laughs> he'd had two centuries, right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, he passed. He passed fifty. But, yes, <laughs> but, but that is how everyone defines it. So sure. Zoltzman can uh, can seat me out if he wants. <laughs> uh, Shranko one up at home <laughs> against. What a fight that would be! <laughs> uh, uh, that is Hugh pay, Grant pay, calling for vibes. Pay per view. Can I just say something about Shaheen as well? Go for uh, it. There was just uh, there was a. An amusing moment when right at the start of uh, Bangladesh's second innings when he was fielding a ball on the boundary and it was sort of a bit ungainly and then you heard uh, a couple of Bangladesh fans just shouting like Matthew Wade at him after the T20 <laughs> World Cup semi-final and you think if there's any sort of if there's any bowler who sort of has as good hot streak there's, well there's nobody who has better hot streaks than Shaheen right now so if there's anyone you don't want to fire up it's him and then it's, it's tough he couldn't really watch this game anywhere so I was having to sort of find dodgy streams and like you know hazy clips and this sort of thing but the new ball spell just looked ridiculous basically like beating the bat by absolutely miles uh who's who's the Bangladesh number four that he got out twice with and they showed a pitch map of the two short balls and both just like right up at the throat that you just like there's there, there is no way to play those um and yeah he was just obviously he's amazing he's now in the top five in the world in the test rankings where Good. he will presumably stay for quite a long my time favorite. hands mm. down my favorite um, Shranka 1-0 up at home against West Indies Lassith Embaldinia took a fourth innings five for there at one point West Indies were 18 for six chasing 348 uh, the second test is three days in it's pretty mm. even at the moment Shranka Good two game. down in their second innings trading by three Virasami Pamal the slow left arm spinner uh, took a five for West Indies in his first test outing in six years uh, Joe what's your moment of the week uh, my moment of the week was uh, press release Came in, came through yesterday that Sir Alistair Cook has signed a contract extension, two more years. He's he's added to his contract, which will take him up to thirty eight um, Essex. Which I mean, Essex will be hugely relieved. They've obviously Tendis Carter's um, retired. It's been a bit of upheaval there, obviously off the field as well. Things haven't been good. They wouldn't want to lose Cook at this point. I'm sure they'd be very grateful he's stuck around. So it was interesting, particularly that it's a two-year contract. He's so he's taken out any of that kind of speculation next year. Will this be his last? Will this be his last? Uh, it won't. He's got at least two more, and who knows? He might kind of do a Jaskothic and and just go on and on. But it, it does strike me that um, you compare him to other England captains of the last thirty years. None of them. I mean, the last to carry on after. Obviously, some of them quit being England captain and played on as non-captain, but but pretty much like Atherton, Stewart, uh, Vaughan, Strauss, obviously, Hussein, as soon as they stopped playing for England, they, they stopped playing cricket altogether. So I guess Gooch would be the last one to go back to a couple of years after playing for England. Uh, and I just think even now, with it's even harder now with the, the intensity of test cricket and the international schedule to stop and then just think oh, I'm going to play some county cricket for a while I don't think many people at all would be up for it 
So it just does, Cook does stand out as unique, even after his test career, which is phenomenal. Uh, and it's not even like he had a great year for Essex. That might have been another mm. reason where he thought, oh, God, I don't know if I can be bothered with this, really. Um, but he wants to stick around and come April, will be walking out to open the batting against Darren Stevens or Christopher Rushworth or whoever it might be, knowing it's a tough gig, but he still wants to do it. And there's something um, quite beautiful in its way about that, really, that he, he can still be still be asked to get out of bed and do it. Yeah, I think he summed that up really well. I think there is a sense of unfinished business with him. I spoke to him in September... Um, it was pissing down at the Oval and we had a chat and and you could sense that he was frustrated. He, you could sense that there was a bit of a grievance as well about the way that the, the season had been set up as, as well. Oh, and he's it, angry about that, isn't he? Yeah. He hates yeah, the conference thing. Indeed. And, you know, he, he'd, he'd abatted literally 20 times before the end of May uh, and then hardly any cricket at all during the one-day stuff. And then you come back in to watch the rain fall a little bit in September. And so there was a de- definite sense of frustration there. Um, uh, also, he does love playing for the, for the club and, and, you know, they obviously underachieved last year. So you can understand why. And also, if you take out the fact that it goes around corners and so on, it's quite a nice gig because he's obviously got a fair few quid in the, in the bank anyway. He gets to work, do his media stuff with BBC through the winter and through the heart of the summer. He did a number of, test matches for the BBC and then he has a bat for a couple of months you know he has he has a go for a couple of months knowing full well that you can't fail it's only degrees of success his career from here on in because you know as he said famously uh, to everybody including me you can, no one can argue with 10,000 test runs no one can argue with that so so look you know he's every time he sets foot in a cricket ground it's from a position of unimpeachable success which is must be a nice place to be um, yeah, so the, the Wolf of Rittle Street, he's, he's back in t- two more years. Good to see. On the county schedule, it's been reported that from next season, there'll be some more games in the middle of the summer. County yeah, Championship games there are. are crucially in the month of July. So last summer, we complained quite a lot about how there's no cricket at all going uh, alongside the English Test Series. So if you're, we talked about Dan Lawrence having very few opportunities to bat if you're slightly out of nick, etc. So that looks to be changing for, for next season. Um, Jamie asked, on a scale of 1 to 11, how much did Phil enjoy the Alistair Cook new contract release video <laughs> on the Essex social media feed? Uh, 12. Marvellous. <laughs> um, ben Gardner wasn't too happy about it. He thought it was a, it was a bum note by, by Essex, considering they've had a rough few weeks. No, I, I, I didn't think that at all. I, I, <laughs> the first thing you said to me when I turned up at the office an hour ago. No. Um, a, How dare that, that's a misquoting. Yeah. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, Phil, your moment of the week. My moment of the week was last Thursday, I went to Lords to the Chance to Shine Awards, annual awards. Um, obviously, it wouldn't have happened last year. It would have been Zoomed last year, but it was the first time back in the in the Tom, Thomas Lords suite this time round. Um, and after a shit show of a few weeks for, for the game, it was absolutely uh, needed for me. And for others there as well, there was a definite kind of unity in the room. I think there was a groundswell of of optimism, um, a shaky optimism for sure, and an acknowledgement by most of the the speakers there, including the chief exec of Chance to Shine Law, accordingly, um, that you know the games had to had to go had to suffer in order to to, to learn a little bit more about itself and its place in the world. Um, but within within that within that recognition. Um, of the game's own reckoning, there were some, some, you know, some rousing stories, rousing stories from, of of characters, people who you don't know, who I didn't know before the night, 
um, whose names don't ring out through the game, who aren't paid money, who give up their time to to making the game and the the young people who get to experience the game through the selflessness of these individuals. Uh, they're just getting the job done, you know, and and there's been a lot of a lot of mud slung at the game, and rightly so, in the last few weeks. Well, this was a moment to to remind yourself that uh, out there in the margins of the game, you know, there are there are people doing good things, really great things, and that and the, what the game has gone through hurts people, really genuinely hurts them because they care for the thing, and 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 they spend a lot of their lives nurturing the game for the next generation and the generation after that um and so it was nice to be there uh i sat on a on a smashing table um i had keaton jennings to my left and jonathan lou's name tag to my right he didn't turn up um uh, i named and shamed there Phil. <laughs> well I'm, I'm sure he had you know i'm sure he was doesn't doing he live something. in berlin sorry he lives in berlin now doesn't yeah he? yeah maybe maybe the email was down or so, i don't know look all right scrap it god i shouldn't talk talk, talk down to the to the king i do appreciate that it was just a little joke anyway i had a lovely table um full of as i say people whose names you wouldn't know and I, I briefly spoke to a bloke called shaheed ali and he is a coach based in sheffield and he was actually chance to shine's coach for 2020 but he was there because this was the first live show again if you like and I spoke briefly to him and I'd been told by somebody, this is a fascinating bloke. So I went and said hello and we set up a time to have a chat the following day. And I called him up, not really knowing what to expect. He wasn't, he didn't feature that night because as I say, he'd won the previous year. Uh, and I phoned him on a whim, really, on a Friday afternoon. And we had a chat for over an hour. And he's one of the most extraordinary people I've ever spoken to in this game and I'm going to write it up in one of the upcoming magazines um, but the, the work that he has done in a very rough part of uh, working class South Sheffield um, in the face of uh, pressure from uh, local gangs in particular because what he is he is bringing cricket to local kids at the ages of 11, 13 and 15, many of these kids would be corner boys and girls, but corner boys particularly, runners for the local drug gangs. He has offered them something else. These kids have naturally gravitated to something more positive and in response, his tyres have been slashed on his car, his windows have been smashed in in his house and he lives in a cul-de-sac, right? So this is not just a random hit. He has been targeted because of the good he is doing in this community. Um, there is, of course, many other layers to this bloke's story, okay? He's trying to 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 develop and nurture the game among the British Asian communities, you know, and this is in Yorkshire. We don't have to elaborate too much on the challenges that that he has faced and which he was very open and upfront about discussing. Um, uh, and I, I put the phone down and, you know, I was really quite, quite moved by the whole thing. Um, I've, I've played through the transcript and... Yeah, again, if you, if you want to just a glimpse into what's happening away from the headlines and away from who's batting five next week and who's got a, you know, who's broken a finger or whatever, fine. That's all important, but it's the pageant. The real stuff happens behind that. Uh, uh, and as, as I say, it's, it's, it's important for the game that we recognise these people and we don't just kind of, you know, pat them on the back and say, well done, but we actually celebrate the work that they do because without them, the game is nothing. Mm. I think what you said about it being a particularly moving uh, month or so for the game, I think, 
definitely correct and hearing those stories is really important a few people messaged us and emailed in after the Rafiq podcast a couple of weeks ago saying they were reduced to tears watching the the testimony I think I've spoken to a few people in the last couple of weeks who have been quite despondent about the game and been like this is what I've spent my whole life being invested in and I almost feel ashamed being uh, associated with it so those stories are really important important. what I just said doesn't come across as just sort of whitewashing anything Mm. or being soppy Um, it's just it's needed to to sometimes just counterbalance the sort of tsunami of misery that it's felt like we've had to we've had to weather over the last few weeks. Mm, um, related to that, uh, the ACB have announced their plan to combat racism within a game. Within the game, it's a twelve point plan. I'll run through some of the the biggest talking points. I guess um, part of the plan is to is is to is to get people within the game um to to understand and educate more training for all those who work in cricket including all staff volunteers recreational club officials umpires directors and coaches removing barriers and talent pathways through measures to address talent identification and scouting education and diversity of of coaches and targeted support programs for players from diverse or underprivileged backgrounds publishing localized equity diversity and inclusion action plans within 6 months with targets for ball diversity 30% female locally representative ethnicity by April 2022. Uh, addressing dressing room culture, a full review of dressing room culture in all men's and women's professional teams, both domestic and international. Creating welcoming environments for all, including accessible seating, food and beverage offering, catering to all faiths and cultures uh, and the availability of facilities such as multi-faith rooms and alcohol-free zones. Um, that all sounds very good and there is laudable targets in there, but I still feel a lot of that's quite abstract. Um, removing barriers in talent pathways, for one, is is easier said than done. Don't know anyone has well, anything yeah, to say? I mean, there's loads of great stuff in there, but there is also, there is so much of it, it's quite hard to work out. I mean, you can't, I don't think you can do all those things at the same time. What's going to be prioritised? A lot of the things, as you kind of say, sound good on paper, but what do they actually amount to? So, for instance, the, the review of the dressing room cultures of all professional team men and women in the country jumped out of me. I mean, it sounds great. It sounds necessary. That is one hell of a piece of work. Uh, who's doing it? Is it the ECB themselves? Or are these professional teams reviewing their own cultures? I, I, that wasn't clear to me from the press release. I don't know if there's been more detail on that. Are the findings going to be made public? If so, what what potential ramifications are there for those, for those reviews? So it's kind of one of those things that you read it, and you're like, well, that sounds sensible. But then actually there's so much that we don't know. It's quite hard to know what the reality of it will be and whether they've just slapped so much stuff down on a piece of paper to kind of diffuse the situation. Um, and the, the, the only answer you can say is we don't know. We'll, we'll have to see how it plays out. Certainly, um, I can't remember the name of the MP. It was a, a shadow cabinet minister who sat on the um, DCMS select committee who was, uh, I think, not optimistic about this and, and said, well, how can we expect... She basically said, why are a lot of these things not already in place in cricket? They're actually just revealing some of the issues that were already there by announcing these things. And also, the people who haven't put those in place, can they be trusted to uh, undertake this review and actually give honest findings? Which was obviously a huge part of the Yorkshire story, is that we couldn't trust them to do their own reporting, as as Butch said on the program a few weeks ago. They essentially marked their own homework, and we can't be in that situation where you're constantly diminishing the problems because you don't want to put yourself in the in the headlights, basically. Yeah, it was it was Joe jo Stevens, the MP, and she yes, she, yeah, yeah. she she called for a, an independent inquiry. So she said the the report's there as a reminder of previous ECB failures to get a grip on the racism scandal in golfing cricket. 
many of the measures listed should have been in place years ago uh, and called for an inquiry. Which yeah, I, I tweeted a couple of weeks ago that I think every club in the country should be encouraged to have a specific inclusion officer on their committee. So someone whose sole job is to be responsible for, for new members, making sure the club is welcoming um, for, for everyone. I think that's just like quite an easy... And I know that's a, that's, a, that's a big job for an individual, but I think that's an easy step for the ECB to take to, to at least encourage it. Moving on, Ben, what's your moment of the week? Well, my moment of the week, I suppose, is less positive than, than Joe and Phil's. It was uh, the sort of... Uh, the mess around the women's cricket world cup qualifier we mentioned on the just mentioned it on the pod last week that uh there was a bit of covid going around and it's eventually uh been enough to cause the whole thing to be just cancelled completely as uh, i think six positive tests within the schlangen team and obviously with the the new variant that's uh sort of a uh, a, a danger and that, that people are taking quite seriously that was enough to say let's not play it right now, uh, not play it on right now uh, obviously fair enough if you think you can't play a tournament safely you do have to put a halt on it I think the two uh, frustrations are it feels like to be honest that uh, cancelling the tournament altogether and not looking at sort of contingencies and other times and places to play it was kind of a, a first resort for the ICC rather than the last resort this was like as soon as sort of a difficulty presents itself I mean you know there's no money in them hosting like a uh, a, a proper fair women's cricket world cup qualifier so if they can find an excuse to to do away with a the thing then they will i mean it doesn't seem like it would be on the wit of of man to have uh you know those teams that sit in contention to also be flown out to new zealand ahead of the women's world cup and play a few extra games there and then you have a marriage crash thing it would even level the playing field between those teams and some of the others because they'd have had a bit more game time leading into it um uh and then how they've then just chosen to uh uh, to decide who gets into the World Cup and also into the Women's Championships. This isn't just for one tournament. This shapes women's cricket or women's international cricket effectively for the next four years uh, based on the decisions they've made on this. And it's based on the on the ODI rankings. And obviously, you know, the rankings get enough criticisms it is in general, even, you know, towards the top of them. As you get further down, it gets even more sort of like uh, flimsy. And especially in the women's game when, you know, Thailand, who are one of the better teams at the qualifiers, they push Pakistan pretty close, beat Bangladesh, beat Zimbabwe but they don't have ODI status. So they're literally not able to get an ODI ranking and are therefore uh, not able to qualify for the World Cup or, for, or, to, or to actually gain ODI status because you gain ODI status based on your performance at these tournaments. Um, and in fact, just a, so two or three years ago, there was quite a lot of fanfare over the IC saying that all tournaments uh, will either have ODI status or not. So that was in place for the Men's Asia Cup and for the Men's World Cup qualifier and should have been in place for this tournament. And that was quietly sort of done away with on the day the tournament started. So Thailand thought they'd be playing, you know, a whole set of ODIs when they could get an ODI ranking. That was then taken away from them at the last possible moment. And then they what had... What the explanation for that? Uh, th- there hasn't really been one. And that's the thing that is, there's, there's been very little meshing around this thing in general. They kind of said that, you know, this was in the playing conditions for the tournament, that if it was cancelled, it would be decided on rankings. We've looked through the playing conditions pretty thoroughly. There's no mention of the rankings in the whole thing. It's just kind of fudged because, you know, <laughs> because because it's the, well, I think it's the easy option. And then basically, cause I, I guess they think they can they can get away with it. I mean, and you know, it's not... So to- can you explain the women's championship with the importance of that? So, yes. not, so Thailand aren't... So I think they were top of their group... Uh, when the tournament was 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 cut short, so they're not qualifying for the World Cup because that's based on ranking. But what, why is it important they're not in the well? That, that that guarantees basically lots of 
bilateral cricket, which feeds into this overall structure. The Women's Championship was in a way the precursor to the Men's Cricket World Cup Super League. It's expanded from eight teams to 10 teams from now on, which again is still just an absolutely glacial pace of progress. I mean, you can see from this tournament that, you know, uh, as I say, Thailand beat Bangladesh, Bangladesh beat Pakistan, Pakistan beat West Indies in the T20 World Cup. They regularly pushed Africa pretty close. There is quite like, you know, obviously you'll get the occasional thrashing of a, a top team against a poor team, but actually there is quite a lot of of a, of a quality of or at least you know the teams like Thailand can compete against the best teams and they're not going to get to do that more unless they get these opportunities so it's been expanded to 10 teams the extra two teams from last time will be Ireland and Bangladesh Bangladesh have qualified for the World Cup by the way over Sri Lanka as well which is quite a big shock I mean Jamari Atapata is one of the most watchable players in the world and she won't be at the World Cup which is a shame although I guess it's, it's good for for Bangladesh but yeah it just guarantees you to have uh, I think it would be I think it I think it's seven bilateral series or possibly it's nine if, if they're playing all teams. I don't think they've announced the full uh, fixture and structure for it yet. But yeah, it's, it's you know, uh, lots and lots of games against the best teams in the world where, you know, you get a bit of funding to go and travel to those places and have the team together more and to test yourself against the best to, you know, exchange ideas with those. It's a, it's a huge thing. I mean, this is how teams get better is by playing the other best sides in the world. And that has been taken away from Thailand to it, I guess, that, the, the, you know, that the, they're, you know, they're one of the most heartwarming stories in 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 world cricket and they've had this huge setback uh put them through absolutely no fault of their own how, how fair is the accusation that thailand are being punished that they don't have a men's team uh well it i mean yeah it is fair i mean if if you look at and, and arguably the uh giving a team full member status is dependent far too much on how the men's team does you look at the fact that afghanistan have full member status despite their women's get women's team having never played an international fixture um, when it's supposed to be that you have a, a full structure in place for women's cricket and for men's cricket, and the IC just kind of ignored that when they uh, when they let uh, Afghanistan get into uh, get full member status. Arguably, Thailand in women's cricket are better now than Afghanistan were when they got uh, men's full member status. But there's you know seems very little danger of, of Thailand getting that. And if they had full member status, I think they would also have ODI status, uh, which would have you know. They would have been able to, they played an ODI, they played a 50 over series against Zimbabwe just before the tournament, for example, and that could have had ODI status when they might have been able to get some sort of ranking. But it's hard to, I mean, they'll, they'll keep battling because that's what they do and they are, uh, they're a very good team. And I think the thing that's shown as well, they clearly just target these qualifying tournaments so much. I mean, you were there at the, at the T20 World Cup qualifier when they were sort of a, a breath of fresh air. And I think there was a photo that did the rounds then of them all having their phone background set to the uh, the official logo of the T20 World Cup 2020 in Australia and they qualified and they had a picture of all the phones next to each other showing how you know they're a united front with this one goal in mind and then uh, uh Chantan put up a, a picture of the women of, of the same thing with the with all the team's phones having the 2022 Women's World Cup logo on it and then just with a couple of heartbreak emojis which is yeah it, it is properly heartbreaking I think pretty depressing story isn't it yeah what I should say as well is just that Ed so Ed Joyce is the uh, Ireland women's head coach and he uh there's quite a lot of celebration from the Ireland players, which some people found a bit sort of not 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 unsavoury, but you know the fact that they kind of got this on a got through on a technicality. Um, but he did a thread saying that look, it is obviously a huge thing for Irish women's cricket, but this is uh, it is very sad for Thailand. And he suggested that the IC just expand the women's championship to uh, eleven or twelve teams next time, so that Zimbabwe, who who also have have, have made good strides, and uh, and Thailand can be included. And I mean that seems like a no brainer. Uh, those are the best 12 teams and there is a, a reasonable gap to uh, the USA as we saw at this tournament. So, mm. 
Um, some other news. Uh, the ODI World Cup Super League series between South Africa and the Netherlands has been postponed amid concerns over the Omicron variant. Um, but India, who are due to tour South Africa very soon, have reiterated, reiterated their commitment to touring. Uh, the I saw that Dwayne Oliver... Oliver. Oliver yeah, is yeah. now available as well for South Africa. Yeah. So after they've had a rough two or three years, to have him potentially lining up alongside Nokia and... And Rabada. Yeah, although he's he didn't have a good year at all for Yorkshire. He's got last a, year. a pretty mediocre county record in general. Yeah. But, he, but in that time, he's had a brilliant record in South Africa and he's been brilliant this season. So maybe it's just the just wickets. Conditions, but maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And Possibly. Wait, wait. I remember Taha making the point, though, that he, he just doesn't look anywhere near as quick. Maybe that's the, the county grind taking its toll. But um, yeah, he, he absolutely wasn't bowling 90 miles per hour when I saw him play this summer but. Wayne Parnell is back as well for South Africa he played in that first ODI against the Netherlands uh, sort of ever present he is way younger than I thought he was <laughs> he's only 32 really yeah oh, I, th- I thought at least 35 um, anyway uh, the WBBL final took place uh, this week Marizan Cap was the player of the match uh, for scoring 31 off 23 and taking 1 for 25 as Perth Scorchers won their first title Cap's had a really good year she not only won the 100 with Oval Invincibles, but she was also player of the match in the final two. So that's two player of the match performances in finals for her in 2021. I read uh, she was really ill beforehand as well. She'd been kind of in bed for three days in the lead up to the game. Uh, And then obviously it was her up against her wife, Dani van Nierkirk in the final as well. And Cap bowled her a maiden. Uh, I think it was a third over the game uh, and said at the end that I think it was it reminded me of when we spoke to Matt Parkinson about playing against Callum. I don't think there's much enjoyment to be had in that rivalry. Um and there was certainly no gloating. But um yeah, pretty impressive performance given that she was um really quite sick in the lead up to it. There's been some news around the the IPL mega auction. The eight current IPL sides have announced who they're retaining uh, ahead of the mega mega auction. Um teams have retained between two and four players. Um Basically, if you don't retain four players, you might have more money. Well, you do have more money to spend in the auction itself. I'll just run through who has been retained. And, uh, so CSK have retained Jadeja, Dhoni, Gaikwad and Moeen. KKR, Narine, Russell, Farron Chakravarti and Venkatesh Ayer. Sunrisers have retained Kane Williamson, Abdul Samad and Umran Malik. So no Rashid Khan, no David Warner, no Johnny Bairstow. Uh, Mumbai have retained Rohit. Sharma, Jasprit, Bumrah, Kieran Pollard and Surya Kumar Yadav. So no Hardik there. Uh, RCB have retained Kohli, Maxwell and Siraj. Delhi Capitals, Pant, Prithvi Shaw, Akshar Patel and Anrik Norkia. Radisan Royals, Sanju Sampson, Joss Butler and Nishasvi, Jaiswal and Punjab Kings, Mayank Agawal and Arshdeep Singh. So no Stokes, no Archer. Yeah. I don't think they'd committed to being available, I think was what I read, which is part of it. They've got um, to give up this Red Bull nonsense. <laughs> well, yeah, it's it's interesting the dynamics at play though, because teams players can sort of negotiate with teams to get in that highest price bracket. But obviously, even in the highest price bracket, you might get more if you go to the auction. Like Rashid Khan is sure. probably the most valuable player in there, and you'd imagine he might well get a, a huge a huge payday. And interesting that Umrah Malik got retained though. The uh, obviously the hundred and fifty yeah wasn't even paid. in the team for the first yeah. two thirds three quarters of the tournament. I guess that's anticipating that he could go for loads just. Because, yeah, fast bowlers have done in the past, out of nowhere. Um, to finish, so we've got a question from Paul Hudson. Who wins a test match between a team of 11 batters and 11 bowlers? No all-rounders allowed. That's a great question. <laughs> but, I mean, it is a great question, but we need... <laughs> oh, don't get all serious. Well, all right, oh, let, let's come ex- on. No, no, shut up. So let's <laughs> extend it. So it's, it's, it's like two opening batsmen 
and a number 10 and 11, right? So there's no question that they can do a bit of this or a bit of that. So yeah. take Rory Burns, 11 Rory Burnses or 11 Hasib Hamids. Yeah. And 11, who bats 11 for England? Jimmy Anderson. Jimmy Anderson, Anderson and Jack Leach, <laughs> right? Anderson and Leach win that hands down. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. 10-0 in a five-match series, they win that hands down. Discuss Ben Gardner. Well, yeah, my, <laughs> my, my point was just that it does obviously depend. It cheapens the show. No. You'd rather the question wasn't even asked. No, no, no. <laughs> it, it, just, it just depends on who the bowlers and the batters well, are because, because of, of, of their relative strengths. Like, you know, if, if Joe Root is that batter, who's obviously a very useful bowler. Joe, shut him up. Or if it's Sean Pollock, who's the bowler. No, he's a rounder. Okay, okay, fine. Uh, and Joe Root's taken five for eight in a test match. He's arguably an all-rounder as well. Yes. I think it's, it's got to be... The question is, you're rubbish... Your rubbish yeah. batters versus your rubbish bowlers, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. And, and then I, and then a bowler wins. Surely, surely. The, the I don't think there's win. any dispute, really, is there? I mean, it would be because bowlers probably average like thirty or forty. Be against such brilliantly terrible. Bowlers. I'd love to watch Roy Burns bowling at ho- for a whole session at James <laughs> Anderson. <I mean. laughs> yeah, and also play it out at club level, right? Forget professional stuff. Play it out sort of Premier League club level. If if Jack Leach batted for whoever in Somerset, you know, then he'd, he'd get a fair few runs. But if if Rory Burns opened the bowling or in in Sorry, club cricket. You'd take him to pieces, wouldn't you, Phil? <laughs> well, all right. That, that might have been the subtext of my point, Joe. That's where we're headed. I, I, I just thought we'd just let that one just drift out there. Fine. Yeah, and, and obviously... Uh, there Burns is, a, is going downtown, I tell you. That. There, there, there is, there is a, a value to bowlers working on their batting. And actually, I think, I think it's probably underappreciated the fact that, you know, like, like, like the likes of Jack Leake or James Anderson will sometimes hit a ball that is bowled at 90 miles an hour, which is something that I would literally never be able to do. Whereas, like, if you're a... A batter there is there isn't much a point in getting better at bowling because you will likely never have to do it Rory Burns bowled a really bad over I think I in, got, in it, protest in a game against Leicestershire he wasn't happy with the the umpire changing the ball so he said I'll, I'll have a bowl then and it, and it was awful what was he bowling uh filthy medium pace yeah but then Chris Cook when he uh, uh when he took his <laughs> when, he, when he took his gloves off in that in that silly game against uh, against Surrey at the end of the season his first ball was an absolute sort of swinging jaffer that you do sometimes get. And you remember Azarali did that at the very end of the second test? Is it to Butler? Fact, to Butler yeah. yeah. And, and he looked embarrassed because it was clearly like it was the, the first ball of the final hour after which they could shake hands. So it was like, fine, I'll have a bowl. And he very nearly sort of damaged Joss Butler's average and I think would have felt quite bad about doing so. Um, right, anyway. You're right there. Scrap it. The, well, cheers, Phil. Cheers, Joe. Cheers, <laughs> Ben. Uh, Paul, hope, we, hope, hope that you, you feel satisfied with our answers to that question there. Um, this has been the Wisdom Cricket Weekly podcast in association with Charles Tirrett. Remember, please use the code WISDOM20 at checkout. Uh, thanks for all the kind words and messages we've received over the past few weeks. It really does mean a lot. If you've enjoyed the show, please do tell your friends. And if you really do like the show, why not leave us a five-star review on the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.